Shelley Schlender. And I'm Jim Pullen. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, January 21st, 2014. Coming up, we'll hear from an award-winning Colorado geologist about how the Earth's crust is like a jelly sandwich. The upper crust is one piece of bread, and the uppermost mantle is another piece of bread, and then the weak crust in the middle is jelly. We'll go to Longmont United Hospital for how to prevent healthcare-acquired infections. We typically advocate hand-washing prior to entering a nursing unit. And from the CU BioFrontiers Institute, we'll learn how microbes in the gut might guard against some forms of autism. Normal microbial community resulted in amelioration of autistic symptoms. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. Researchers at Peking University report that more than 20% of China's contribution to global air pollution comes from products made in China for export to the United States. As for consequences, in 2006, the U.S. lost jobs to outsourcing, and there was less sulfate pollution in the eastern U.S. But sulfate pollution went up over the western U.S., blown there from increased manufacturing in China. Air pollution standards in China are lower than in the U.S., so each product outsourced to China tends to cause more air pollution than if it had been made in the good old U.S. of A. Writing in the Proceedings of the National Academies of Science this week, the researchers say it's unclear who is ultimately responsible for outsourced pollution, the Chinese manufacturer or the U.S. consumer. It's a question the international community should try to answer. For How on Earth, I'm Ted Burnham. How on Earth volunteer Susan Moran is heading to northern Norway for the Arctic Frontiers Conference. Despite temperatures no higher than the teens, this annual conference draws leaders from around the world. They talk about oil and gas development, the impacts of climate change in the Arctic, and how a warmer climate might even open up more shipping lanes through the North Pole. We caught up with Susan in the airport on the way to Norway. Seems that here are shipping you know, as the Northeast Passage opens up in that area, technological and political challenges, World Wildlife Fund, the Greenpeace on the environmental side, foreign secretaries of different countries that have some stake in the Arctic. We'll hear more about the Arctic Frontiers Conference when Susan returns from Norway in early February. For How on Earth, this is Kendra Kruger. Congratulations to KGNU's science show volunteer, Joel Parker. In his day job, Joel's a director at the Southwest Research Institute's Space Studies Division in Boulder. Right now, Joel's in Europe, helping with the Rosetta Orbiter that was launched into space nearly 10 years ago. Rosetta's been gathering data about the solar system, and its orbit path took it so far from the Sun, in 2011 it was put into hibernation to save energy. Rosetta's orbit is finally close to the sun again, so yesterday it came back to life and started its final journey toward a a two-and-a-half-mile comet named Churimokov-Gerimasenko. From Europe, here's Joe Parker. We were very nervous about whether we would hear from Rosetta or not. It had been in hibernation for two-and-a-half years. We had not heard from Rosetta at all till now. And so basically we were keeping our fingers crossed. And of course, it had to be a little late. It was about 30 minutes late, just enough to make everybody nervous. Now, 
in the room, I did have my computer recording the audio. And I think I have the cheer that came up when the signal arrived. It's in the same spot. Yes. Yeah, on the, on the right one as well. There's again. Yeah. Do we see it in both? It's still there on the right hand side. Look, yeah, it's in both. It's in both. Yes. Yes. Yeah, you look happy in there. If all goes as planned, Rosetta will land on the comet Churimokov Gerimasenko in August, becoming the world's first space mission to rendezvous with a comet, the first to attempt a landing, and the first to follow a comet as it swings around the sun. Scientists hope Rosetta's data will give new insights into the origins of our solar system. For How on Earth, I'm Jane Palmer. This has been a look at the headline news in science. For KGNU, I'm Shelley Schlender. You're tuned to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Jim Pullen. CU Boulder scientist Peter Molnar has just won the world's most prestigious prize for geoscience. It's the $600,000 Crawford Prize, awarded by the Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences. The prize jury praised Molnar for his innovative study of mountains and tectonic plates. Among his many interests, Molnar does research on how changes in the Tibetan plateau over tens of millions of years have affected the motion of the atmosphere and what that can tell us about climate change. While most people think of clouds and oceans as fluid systems, but consider rock solid earth, Molnar says the entire planet is basically a fluid. Take the first few hundred miles beneath our feet. Here's Peter describing what geologists like to call Earth's jelly sandwich. So the top part, we have fractures going through it. Then we go through this weak middle part, and then we probably become stronger again. We think we become stronger again. It's often termed the jelly sandwich model. It's like the upper crust is one piece of bread and the uppermost piece of mantle is another piece of bread, and then the weak crust in the middle is jelly. But we haven't been able to quantify this well enough. We don't know how to estimate its overall strength. We're still groping. What do you think the most remarkable and significant challenges remaining are? Well, I think the biggest unresolved question in the climate world is what's the effect of clouds? And I haven't got a clue how to attack this problem. But it's my strong impression that we don't know whether increased warming will lead to increased cloudiness and, more importantly, where those clouds will lie if there's increased cloudiness. We don't know well how to predict whether those clouds will actually enhance the warming or will act as a negative feedback. I think about it all the time, and I don't have a clue. If I had an idea, I would go for it, but I, I haven't had an idea. What advice do you have for young scientists? Get good fundamentals and then follow what turns you on. Go have fun. Science is really fun. People should enjoy doing it. Peter Molnar is a professor of geophysics at CU Boulder. He's just won the Crawford Prize, the most prestigious prize for work in geosciences. We'll share more from Molnar in upcoming weeks. For How on Earth, I'm Jim Pullen.
This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. I'm Shelley Schlender. Last week, the Associated Press reported that Colorado is overall slightly above average when it comes to preventing new infections in a healthcare setting. But that happy news hides a more troubling detail. You see, when people go to the hospital, they don't expect to leave with a brand new illness. But the Centers for Disease Control warns that nationwide, one out of every 20 Americans receives a hidden time bomb at surgery centers, hospitals, and other medical settings. It's a healthcare-associated infection. These infections can come in many forms, ranging from an infection during a hip replacement or during the insertion of an IV or just by being in the emergency room and catching an illness from another patient. Some steps for preventing infections are pretty straightforward, which is why in the Longmont United Hospital Intensive Care Unit, a nurse washes her hands while singing. She's following Centers for Disease Control guidelines that encourage washing hands for more than just a splash of time, about the length of happy birthday. Following CDC guidelines gets much more technical as nurse Holly Solom prepares a central line IV for a woman who watches from an ICU bed. Solom explains to her patient. So what it is, it's a long IV, goes into your forearm, ends up about here to the, to the end of the superior vena cava, the biggest vein in your body. That enables that line to give you as much medication as you need. A lot of the medications that you're getting are caustic to the vein. We don't want to harm your vein for future use. So that was one of the reasons. Also, you can we can draw blood from it. You won't have any more sticks, hopefully. Oh, nice. Yeah, so that's one of the big selling points that we like to let people know. However, these lines are prone to infection. And the CDC reports that the cost of treating a central line infection is over $20,000. Plus, infections delay recovery and sometimes they're deadly. To prevent them, Solom follows another CDC set of protocols that has helped cut the infection rates for this procedure in half over the last decade or so. So we're, we're, I will be all garbed up in a gown. Like I said, it looks like we're doing surgery, but we aren't. As for the procedure, she first unwraps a hospital blue bundle. She dons sterile blue gloves, mask, and gown. She and the other ICU nurse drape blue cloth all over their patient. I'm going to finish draping you up. So these are to stay under the blue, okay? So make sure your left arm's comfy under there because it needs to stay under the drape while we finish our procedure, okay? The IV will go into her right arm. So they swab that arm with orange disinfectant over and over, all the while explaining. The reason for that sterile is to prevent you against any infection. Mm -hmm. um, we're very proud of our infection rate here. The nurses say that Longmont's infection rates for this procedure are very low, well below the national average, and patients appreciate knowing this. We explain to every patient our infection rate, um, how or lack of infection rate, and you can just see the relief spread on their face with that because that's always one of their questions. Am I going to get an infection or what are my risks of infection? And the other one, how long will this be here? Patients have a lot more questions than they used to. The Centers for Disease Control has best practice guidelines that we follow to the T, as well as evidence-based medicine. That's infectious disease specialist Mike Langona. He confirms that meticulous care means that central line infection rates at Longmont United are lower than the national average. 
he uses similar care to reduce other infections. For instance, Langona says each patient admitted to the ICU gets swabbed under the arms and in the nostrils for the highly contagious, drug-resistant microbe known as methyl-resistant Staph aureus, better known as MRSA. One of the reasons that we do this swabbing of these patients coming to ICU is we know that other patients in the ICU are extremely susceptible to infections. We want to take the appropriate precautions and what we do then is if we identify someone that has a MRSA colonization or infection, we will put them in contact isolation as recommended by the Centers for Disease Control. And what that means is any healthcare worker, any family member who's coming into the room, they will wash their hands first, they will put on gloves, and they will put on a gown. Prior to them leaving the room, they remove the gown, remove the gloves, and wash their hands. That greatly reduces us in terms of healthcare workers transmitting the organism to ourselves or other patients, and it ensures a degree of safety for the family members too. You know, that's the approach that we take based on the CDC guideline. In the last decade, protocols like these have reduced healthcare-associated infections nationwide, but one infection remains at historic highs. C. diff colitis can cause severe diarrhea and even death. In Denver, University of Colorado Hospital gastroenterologist Steve Freeman says one common trigger is excess antibiotics that kill off good gut microbes. Well, you know, we don't understand exactly why C. difficile does what it does, but it becomes it appears to become a dominant organism in the colon of people that have their normal flora disrupted usually by antibiotics. It's, it's a bully. It becomes it's, a bully. It, it, it's, it's there always, but usually under the, if all the flora are around it are there, it isn't allowed to be that bully, but it, if they're altered you know, in some way, then it is allowed to become the dominant organism or the bully in the, in the colon and cause its, cause its havoc. His team now offers a therapy that's been around for decades but seldom used because of what Freeman calls the yuck factor. That's because the treatment is a colonoscopy where he infuses a sick gut with a healthy donor's feces and its microbes. Uh, the yuck factor is, has always been a very big drawback to this therapy, but once the efficacy became obvious, it became less of a problem. For me personally, that was true. And I think that's probably been the experience of most gastroenterologists and other physicians who are, who are doing this. And certainly it's true with desperate patients. For curing a C. diff colitis infection, Freeman says this stool transplant is twice as effective as antibiotics. These stool transplant success rates hint that there's more to learn about how to prevent and stop infections. As for reducing your risk of healthcare-associated infections, you can check out the rates for the hospitals and medical centers you plan to use through a link we'll provide at howonearthradio.org. I'm Shelley Schlender. A new study shows that feeding mice a beneficial type of bacteria can reduce autism-like symptoms, and it's groundbreaking, according to scientists at the CU BioFrontiers Institute. They backed those words by writing a commentary about the research, which appeared recently in the prestigious science journal Cell. The autism study strengthens the recent scientific understanding that the microbes that live in your gut may affect what goes on in your brain. It's also the first to show that a specific microbe may be capable of reversing autism-like behaviors in mice. For more, here are two of the commentary authors. My name is Dorota Porozenska. 
Hi, I'm Sophie Weiss, and I'm a graduate student here at CU Boulder. You have this commentary you've done about one of the more interesting studies looking at how the microbiome, the bacteria and microbes in our gut, may influence autism. Now, do you realize that 10, 15 years ago, you would have been called a woo-woo, airy-fairy person for even suggesting that? That's true. <laughs> this is not something that was considered scientific two decades ago to Im imply that the microbes in our gut might influence something like our anxieties and our social behaviors. Well, we really did not know the numbers and diversity of microbes in association with our bodies. And only recently we came to realize the importance of microbes and their presence and diversity on our bodies. For such a long time, people just thought that microbes in us were something to kill with antibiotics. That is right, but the concept actually of microbes as foreign to our bodies has been changing and we have more and more evidence supporting the idea that majority of the microbes are actually good for us. They co-evolved with us. There's only maybe a very minor group of organisms that potentially could have negative effects on our health. Well, then most of those microbes are on our team. When we kill them off with antibiotics, we run the risk that we're killing off all the good guys and leaving room for the bad guys to take over. That is absolutely correct. Most of the bacterial cells are hypothesized to be playing a helpful, in some ways, relationship with us. And when we do use treatments that are associated with antibiotics, we are not really very selective in terms of who we are getting rid of and who we are keeping. And very often it just turns out that the bad guys have a chance to flourish and take over and really cause uh, serious problems. You, Dorota, and you, Sophie, are saying that there's pretty strong evidence that microbes that are out of balance in the gut can affect whether I feel anxious in a crowd or whether I feel like I want to stay away from new situations, which are two typical autistic spectrum disorder behaviors. The study that um, have been published in Cell is just a very good example that provides several lines of evidence that support that sort of um, idea that the imbalance in the microbial community within the gut can have implications not just on the gastrointestinal aspects of the health, but also have farther implications that go into the brain and um, lead into autistic, for instance, symptoms. This new paper that was published by who? It was published by Hasio et al. That's at Caltech University. A group besides you all here at the CU BioFrontier Center published this study where they looked at mice, mother mice. They got them a little bit sick, and that caused the mother mice to have babies that were more likely to have autism in how they behaved. So far, so good? So far, so good. When those babies were born and they had autistic-like behaviors... They gave them a probiotic, a single microbe, and a lot of them got better? Correct. So the probiotic was in the form of 
a bacterial commensal that is typically present within the human gut. And it has a name, it's Bacteroides fragilis. It is Bacteroides fragilis. I said it wrong. Bacteroides fragilis. Bacteroides fragilis. So fragile bacteria. Almost. Little Mr. Fragile Bacteria was put in, did they eat it in a pellet or did it get injected into their blood? It was orally administered, as I recall, within the apple sauce that was fed into the mice. They were fed Bacteroides Fragilis Laced Applesauce. Yes, mice have very uh, specific appetites. (laughs) They must like apples a lot. They must. (laughs) But somehow, just adding that one microbe into the mice got enough of it into their gut that you think it healed the leaky gut, and it also reversed a lot of their symptoms of autism. That's right. So the application, the treatment with um, B. fragilis resulted in the restoration of the normal, uh, so to speak, microbial community and also resulted in the amelioration of the autistic uh, symptoms in mice. Partially, not entirely, um, but it did have a significant effect on the improvement of the behavior of the mice as well. But there is a lot of caution that needs to be applied uh, here in making any interpretations on what's gonna work and what's (laughs) not going to work. There are a lot of cautions about how to apply this, but at the same time, I hear you saying that there's a lot to take seriously. Yes, it does appear that we are really just a very complex system that's driven not only by our genetics, but also influenced and bombarded by the variety of environmental factors, but also we need to start considering more and more the interaction between our cells and the bacteria that inhabit our bodies. We need to be really good farmers of a friendly system of microbes inside of us. And Sophie, since this bacterioides fragilis helped the mice so much, what do you think? Should parents with children of autism start feeding their children bacterioides fragilis in their applesauce? I wouldn't consider that right now. This is just in a mouse model for now. And also, another bacteria was shown to have pretty much the same effect. I see it here now. Yeah. Can you even say that word? Theatomicron? Theatomicron. Yeah, bacteroides. Those seem to have been the good guys in this situation that healed the mouse's leaky gut. Yes, but we also have to caution that it really is a community of microbes in the gut. It's not just necessarily a magic bullet. I'm Shelley Schlender. We've been talking with CU Boulder Research Associate Dorota Porozinska and doctoral student Sophie Weiss, who are part of a team of scientists who call a new study about autism and gut microbes groundbreaking for demonstrating that the health of the microbes in your gut may also affect what goes on in your brain. They've written a commentary about the study in Cell, and some of the authors have formed the Autism Microbiome Consortium. The Interdisciplinary Consortium, which taps experts in a range of disciplines from psychology to epidemiology, is investigating the autism-gut microbiome link. (music) 
That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Jim Pullen. This week's show was produced and engineered by me. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Sandra Wong and the European Space Agency's Rosetta Mission. Can't listen to How on Earth at our regular time? No worries. Just go to howonearthradio.org and subscribe to our podcast using the iTunes button. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Shelley Schlender. And I'm Jim Pullen.